this was it. This was the event. Because we didn't know the time horizon. We all know where it was going. And now suddenly somebody lit the match, poured the kerosene on and threw the match on it. Yeah. And we'll see how fast this is going to play out now. Hello there from Bedford, UK. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got a monster panel that I hosted for Real Vision with Rao Powell, Caitlin Long and Travis Kling, where we discuss what the fuck is going on in the markets. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up today, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And what a great start to the year they have had. They've just posted a 100% increase in their revenue in Q2. The company is going from strength to strength after raising their last round. So with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account where you can earn money on your Bitcoin. I've got this. I do love getting my interest every month. You can also take out a USD loan using your Bitcoin as collateral. And that's not all. They've got some other very cool stuff coming soon. I've been talking to Zach about this. I cannot wait to tell you. If you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Or you can download their app, which is available in the Apple and Android app stores. Also, let's talk about Kraken and why they are the very best place for you to go and buy your Bitcoin. Firstly, they have world-class security. They do not fuck around with their security. They are the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. No hacker is going to get your Bitcoin out of Kraken. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever problem you're having, they are going to help you. They're going to help you through it. They also have the most comprehensive set of tools for buying Bitcoin. At Kraken.com, it could not be easier for you to sign up and start buying Bitcoin. And they also released recently their beautiful mobile-first app, so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. So wherever you are, if you're at McDonald's drive-thru, you're waiting to get your cheeseburger, and you're thinking, I want some more fucking Bitcoin, then you can do that with the Kraken mobile app. Also, with margin trading, futures, and their OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so on to today's show, and this one is a bit of a monster. So Rao Powell got in touch recently. Rao has been on the show a few times, the founder of Real Vision, and they were going to host a virtual conference. So they got in touch and they said, did I want to host a couple of panels? Of course I said yes. And they gave me an open floor for whatever I wanted to talk about with whichever guests I wanted. So... Yeah, straight away, it was a pretty obvious one. I wanted to get a few of the financial heavyweights in that I've been talking to. So I said, look, I really want to do a what the fuck is going on panel. I want you in it, Rao. I want Caitlin Long and I want Travis Kling. Three people I've been talking to regularly over the last 18 months about what's going on in the markets. They've all been saying the same stuff. So I thought this was a good chance to get them together. So the team pulled it off. They got all three of them together and we hosted this panel. And I said, look, I think this is a good show. I think we should put this out in the podcast. And they were happy to do it, which is very cool. So listen, before the coronavirus outbreak and the subsequent lockdowns and the resulting kind of catastrophic impact on the economy, Rao, Caitlin, Travis, they've all been on my shows. They've all been highlighting the systemic risks in the market, the cracks that we're seeing. They've all been highlighting that there are risks there. And with the economy going kind of kind of to shit really over this period, it was a really important time to get them on and say, okay, come on, let's go through this. How did we get here? What is happening? What's going to happen? And how do we prepare? They all killed it. This is an amazing show. So a big thanks to Rao and the team at Real Vision for letting me do this. 
I hope you enjoy this one. If you do have any feedback, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, I put out a nice, interesting and positive show for 2020 on my other podcast, Defiance, that's at defiance.news, How to End Humanity, all about synthetic biology. Definitely worth checking out. And as I said, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, have a great weekend. Lockdowns are ending for my friends in America. I hope you have a great Independence Day. Celebrate kicking us out of the country, getting rid of our king, getting rid of our tea. We're still friends. But have a great weekend. Love you all. See you soon. Bye-bye. Guys, I think we're live. So, Peter, I don't know if you're kicking off for us. I am kicking off. Well, Raul, thank you for the invite to do this and to be part of this event you're putting on with Real Vision. When I spoke to your team, they asked me any specific sessions I would like to do. I was very quick to say I would like to have yourself and Caitlin and Travis together because... Over the last 18 months, I've had at least both of you on my show at least twice, and you've all been alluding to very similar things with regards to the economy, pointing to systemic risks within the financial markets in different ways, but you've all three of you have essentially been pointing in the same direction. And all of these conversations we were having was before coronavirus hit. All the warnings that all of you put out in different ways were happening before that. We've had coronavirus. We've had this acceleration now. So I felt like, um, I'll pick my language carefully, despite the name of the session. Uh, I said, I kind of want to do a, a WTF session about what is going on in, in the markets and an opportunity to get the three of you together to discuss this because you've all been saying the same things. So a starting point and, um, We'll start with Caitlin first, because Caitlin was the first person I had this conversation with, and then we'll work our, our way through. But it'd be great for all of you just to explain how you think we got here. And that could be an hour session on its own. So it'd be really important if you perhaps maybe just kind of pick out one thing or one or two things that really, like one of the really important issues and one of the real re, the reasons we've ended up in this quite weird and scary position in the in the market. So over to you, Caitlin. Hey, thanks, Peter. Good to see you all. Uh, just as an introduction, I think we've ended up here because we're in a debt bubble. We've been building a debt bubble since 1968 uh, in the U.S. specifically, but of course, it's global as well. Um, speaking to the U.S., since 1968, the U.S. has consumed more than we've produced every year except for the, the, the 2009, which was the year after the financial crisis. Every year, we've put more debt on our balance sheet than we as an economy have saved which meant that we've been able to, we've been drawing down our equity. And so the folks who predicted the dollar crash in 1971 after the, uh, when Nixon took, uh, took, took the US off the gold exchange standard were not wrong, but what they missed is that we had a tremendous balance sheet that was bequeathed to us by our grandparents and their grandparents, et cetera. And so we were able to live, outlive our means um, to, consume more than we've produced. And it's lasted a long, long time. And that's made those who are concerned about debt be on the defensive because the MMTers, of course, think debt doesn't matter. But I, I, I will close by saying it doesn't matter until it's the only thing that matters. And we don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, but the deflationary pressures we're seeing now are caused by the collapse of the bubble and the inflationary pressures are caused by the reaction to it, which is to create more credit and draw down that last bit of balance sheet that remains. 
I'll go to Travis next. The order I'm choosing is the order I've spoken to you about this. So that's my uh, that's my fairness. So Travis, uh, same question over to you. Yeah, I mean, we all. I think the three of us had our conversations with you before anybody ever said COVID nineteen, and I, I've been calling COVID the the great accelerator because it was it was accelerating. It, it has it has meaningfully accelerated so many trends in major global macro factors that were already in place. And those go back to, to, to Caitlin's point, you know, you can go back decades and decades. You can also look to the Fed's reaction to the financial crisis in 08, which that, that in and of itself took us further down a path. And, you know, just in an incredibly short amount of time in, in March and, and April of this year, the other term I've been using a ton is, is crossing the Rubicon. We, we, we covered so much ground in such a short period of time in the face of this kind of unprecedented global pandemic. Well, you met that with this unprecedented level of monetary and fiscal response. And you've now gone so far so fast that it's easy to lose track of the fact that, you know, we did QE1, QE2, QE3, the aggregate size of that you know, you, you rip that in, in a couple weeks in, in the back part of March and the first part of April. And, you know, Andrew Yang ran on a, uh, a platform of universal basic income with an MMT underlier. And, you know, he basically got laughed out of the room for being, you know, so radical in those views. And now you fast forward, you know, 60 days and, and that, that's, that's exactly what we're doing. We're doing UBI with an MMT underlier. And so... Mm-hmm we've crossed the Rubicon in a lot of ways. Well, So I think it comes down to, I agree with everything, obviously, that uh, the others have said. I think it comes down to two simple things. And it came after Nixon. And it's the size of the dollar standard and how it's dwarfed everything and basically broken the world's financial system. Then that's intertwined. What made it so weak was the financialization of the global economy. That's the debt story, plus a whole bunch of other things, the outsides of banks and the lending markets overall. And then it's demographics. When you've got this massive aging population, those three intertwined create debt demographics and deflation, the three Ds that many of us have looked at, that come together. And what happens in the end of all of that is the drugs don't work. And the central bank drug just doesn't work any longer. So the answer is only more. But if they don't work, then you get yourselves into the bigger problem. And as Travis said, the accelerant was here. This was it. This was the event because we didn't know the time horizon. We all know where it was going. And now suddenly somebody lit the match, poured the kerosene on and threw the match on it. Yeah. And we'll see how fast this is going to play out now. It's it, it's kind of funny, Raul, because I think probably for all three of us, a lot of people over, you know, prior to Corona, over the, you know, the year or however long leading up to that, people were asking us what the, what was the thing going to be? What mm-hmm. was the catalyst going to be? Right. And no, no, you know, I, you know, I don't think very many people said a global pandemic, although, you know, there's plenty of people that have been, you know, waving the flag in terms of the magnitude of the risk that was present for, present for something like this to potentially happen. But, you know, and all of us were, 
I mean, I used to say that when people would ask me that question, I, I would normally say, I'm not really sure, but I'm pretty positive you're going to know it when you see it. And then here comes this thing. And I think pretty quickly it was like, oh, this is probably going to be the thing because well, of specifically how. Yeah. Imagine if it's not. Then I can't get my head around it. We've had the biggest economic event of all of our lifetimes and arguably in all recorded history. The UK had the worst recession in 350 years of data. Right? If this doesn't trigger it, then we're all wrong. <laughs> then debt, debt doesn't matter and GDP growth doesn't matter and nothing matters. And the study of macroeconomics doesn't work. And so it kind of, it's now nothing. And then the MMTers are right, right? Actually, I, I wanted to play devil's advocate and actually throw it out there. Are you all surprised that the dollar has held up as well as it has, given what has given that it's pretty clear the debt bubble has been pricked and there's really no credit impulse in the private sector? It's all coming from fiscal and monetary stimulus right now. I'm a huge dollar bull. I think it goes higher. The problem is, is at the simplest level, we've got this massively financialized world and it's all in dollars. The US accounts for 25% of the global economy, but it's 79.5% of all trade transactions, right. the dollar. So, and, and everything is backed by debt. So the problem is, is the actual lack of credit impulse drives the dollar higher. Falling GDP growth drives the dollar higher. Trade tariffs drives the dollar higher. Now, the dollar's not doing as well as gold or Bitcoin, and that's telling you something. Yes. So the reality is, is the dollar of the fiat currencies is absolute king without question. The dollar standard rules all. But it doesn't rule the gold standard, and it doesn't rule Bitcoin right now. Raul, I saw in the news this week that in Zimbabwe, they have banned the use of apps which allow you to use dollars. Do you think there is like a risk in emerging markets first? We've seen a collapse of the currency in Lebanon, that there is a flight to the dollar. And is, do you think this is what's holding the dollar up? Yes, of course. Everybody needs dollars. So there's a good friend of mine who runs a family office in the Dominican Republic. And he keeps saying to me, you know, he's a big dollar bull as I am. And he keeps reminding me, Raul, do you understand? You know, his family produces an agricultural commodity. They export it. They have other businesses. He goes, we need dollars. We have cost base in dollars. We get revenues in dollars. The central bank limits our access to the dollar. We don't have swap lines. It's not easy to get dollars. People don't understand. Because if you live in Europe or the UK or the US, you know, we can buy and sell dollars, no problem. But that's not true of anybody else. The ability to buy and sell dollars is almost impossible for some. We've seen a lot of weird things happening. Um, both Caitlin and Rao, uh, sorry, both Caitlin and Travis previously had to explain to me negative interest rates because it was something I'd never been exposed to. And then in our last interview, Rao, you were explaining to me how we achieve negative prices on oil, which is something I couldn't even comprehend before ever happening. Um, with oil becoming even more volatile than Bitcoin. We've also, Raul, you've talked a lot about bond rates heading towards zero. We've had stocks flying whilst the economy has been essentially paused in many parts of the world. And uh, something me and Tra Travis talked about is the arrival of the Robinhood day trader, which has seen some crazy things happen in equities. <laughs> How do you each interpret what's going on here? And I'll start with you, Travis, because we spoke about this yesterday. So, so the world is collectively trying to figure out how to react to a global pandemic in the face of 
unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus. And I think a lot of the things, a lot of the, you know, the weirdness that you're seeing in equity markets, like, like Wall Street bets, Robin Hood, Davy Day Trade Global is like this, this mutant child of quantitative easing that we all probably could have seen coming, but I, nobody was really talking about it before it happened. And they're, and they're all, I think, in, in, in very much, uh, I think they're all inter- interconnected in, in a lot of ways. But what, what, what I think we're seeing is risk assets taking the, the adage of, of don't fight the Fed and like wind sprinting that is as far in one direction as you can go and almost like daring the Fed to whether or not it's going to, it's going to, you know, renegotiate on that, on that contract. Yeah. It's a really precarious situation. Incredibly precarious. How about yourself, Caitlin? How how do you interpret everything that's happening right now? It's, it's playing out not that different from expectations, except I I guess I'm surprised to Raul's point uh, that the dollar has held up as well as it has precisely because I've known about the dollar short, both Raul and I have been talking about the magnitude of the dollar short for years now. And and I think some folks are just starting to learn about it. It's probably north of $100 trillion. We don't really know because there isn't any statistical body that keeps track of it. And because of the real problems with the accounting rules that allow multiple financial institutions, multiple owners of government bonds, any asset, but especially government bonds, um, to the, the multiple, that, that same single asset is recorded as an asset on multiple parties' balance sheets. And so each individual owner of that asset, like a bank or an insurance company or an individual, looks like they actually have that asset in hand, but there's really only one asset, right? And the magnitude of that double counting of assets is not known because accountants allow that to happen. It's, it's, it's called repo accounting. And, and in fact, actually an accounting change after the 2008 financial crisis that attempted to fix what was called the repo 105 problem at Lehman actually made it worse. It made it even more opaque. And so we don't really know uh, how, how solvent the financial institutions that we're dealing with really are if you were to strip out all that double, triple, quadruple, probably many multiples uh, counting of the exact same assets. Um, uh, Chris Giancarlo, the former head of the CFTC, who's also a big Bitcoin fan, has also talked about this. The regulators don't have the tool to understand what the real capitalization of financial institutions is because you don't know how much double counting there is. And that is the whole accounting profession when this finally does come crashing down is going to have a lot to answer for, in my opinion. And Raul? So I think I've been using a framework that I've stuck to, and it seems to be working, which is that big events like this tend to roll out in three phases. One is the liquidity event, which was into March. That's the panics, buy or sell of assets, I need cash. Then you get the hope phase. Normally, it starts in March and finishes in June. That was the case in the Nikkei 1990, the S&P 2001, the S&P 2008. Only, Only 1929 was longer and slightly different in terms of timings. And I think the next phase is the the insolvency phase, when cash flows don't return back to normal and the debt loads that we're all talking about become unserviceable. So we've not had this demand and supply shock ever before. 
the 1930s was probably the closest, but this is a truly extraordinary event. So where are we now, this kind of madness of markets? Well, I just did, uh, just wrote GMI over the weekend, and I spent some time thinking about it. Why March, why March and June? Why does that keep coming up? Why do those two dates come up magically? Sure, it could be coincidental, but it's not. It's to do with pension funds and how they come in. So at the end of the year, pension funds basically are market followers. They follow EPS forecasts from the investment banks. At the end of the year, the investment banks were forecasting record earnings per share for 2020. So the allocation was about 65% equities. Well, then the market collapsed into March. So now they find themselves, they got down to about 45% equities. So they had a lot of equities to go up by to go back. Now, EPS were coming down a bit, so they don't buy back the full amount that gets them back to 65%. They buy back the amount where the EPS estimates were, which was about 57% allocation to equities. Okay, so that ignites this big rally because that's a lot of money. And then Davy Day Trader and everybody else start piling in on the back because it's all about the Fed. But today, we're coming into month end. So when you look at it now, EPS are now at $125 for the end of the year, which basically means that these guys have to take their equity weightings down to 45%, back to where it was at the low. So we've got this potential shift along with all of the other things I've talked about in the past that people are familiar with is the lowering of the rates of stimulus, both from the central banks and the governments. And you know a lot of other things that all come together, including the second wave of the virus, that means that we've got this huge pocket where the pension funds are sellers, the state pension funds don't have any tax receipts, so they're not buyers. And there's a bunch of retail weak holders. So I'm very concerned that we're at the tipping point into the next phase. Next up, I talked to Rao, Caitlin and Travis more about what the fuck is going on. But before that, I got a message from my amazing, amazing sponsors. So first up, we've got Sportsbet. Have you checked out Sportsbet.io yet? They are the best place for online gaming. And because they're badasses, they accept Bitcoin. And now, with the football back, we can have a little wager now. I am giving away £100 in Bitcoin every time Tottenham loses between now and the end of the season, which uh, I've already had to pay out once, which is pretty funny. But I'm also having a few little wagers myself on the football. Now Liverpool has won. I'm going to have a look at who might get relegated. Some interesting options down there. Also, they don't just have football. They've got all sports, and they've got their Bitcoin casino. And with the football back, you don't just have the Premier League. You've got Serie A. You've got La Liga back. And with Sportsbet, you've got a chance to win big. You can take part in their weekly leaderboard promotion. You've got a chance to win signed Lionel Messi and Christian Ronaldo shirts. You can claim cash prizes and free bets. All worth checking out. It's available at sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. Sportsbet is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And good luck with that. Also, let's talk about Casa, the best in Bitcoin security. Now, I am fully signed up. I've done my ceremony. I've distributed my keys. I've put my Bitcoin in there. I am a fully signed up customer of Casa. I cannot believe I didn't do this shit earlier. I've got my security peace of mind in place. Firstly, I've just got to say, the team absolutely smashed it. The process from signing up to having your keys set up and the advice they give is really, it's really quite incredible. They really smashed it. But outside of that, it's really good to have the security in place for three reasons. Firstly, 
I can reduce my own mistakes of actually losing a key because you have the ability to rotate keys. I can't get hacked now. It's going to be impossible to hack me because I've got a multi-sig set up. And also, someone can't come and extort me because I don't always have my keys with me. It is an amazing setup, a really good product. Now, listen, I went for the Casa Platinum, which is $150 a month. I know that's steep. But if you've got the right amount of Bitcoin, it's definitely worth considering. But if you've got a smaller amount, if you just want to try them out, you can go for their two or three key option. It's the gold option. They charge $10 a month for that. And that's going to give you a much more robust security protection for your Bitcoin. With a single hardware wallet, you get triple the security protecting your Bitcoin. So look, it's really a no-brainer for improving your Bitcoin security. You definitely want to check it out. They've also got a free trial, which is at trial.keys.casa. But look, if you want to try out the Platinum or Diamond package, you can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. So the next phase is sounds to me is the kind of calamity that you've all been alluding to, a kind of unwinding of, of the economy. Have you actually thought about how that happens, how serious it is, and is there anything the central banks can do now, or is this? are we at the point of no return? I'll start with you on that, Raoul. I've never thought the central banks are omnipotent. I've thought that they've been able to slow their descent, much like Japan, and they create other problems, as we're all, all aware of. So... I think, again, if I, I just think in a simple probabilistic framework, we've had the biggest economic event of our lifetimes. It's ongoing. So what is the probability that it unwinds the debt bubble, considering that everybody's earnings, their revenues and cash flows are down, whether at household level or at corporate level? Well, it's pretty high. If I think about all of the dollar borrowers who are corporations, not governments this time around, unlike 1998, well, their cash flows are down too because global trade is the worst in all history. So the probability that this ends up being an insolvency event, much like the last mass insolvency event we had was actually 1930 to 1933. We've never had one since. So it's very interesting. And I think that is the kind of framework that I would look for. Do we try and get to a solution faster? Possibly. But if we all believe that central banks will be the answer, we won't get to the solution yet. The solution will come in a number of different ways, of which part of this is what we're all involved in, which is the parallel building of an entirely new financial system that's going on at the same time. We will get to Bitcoin. <laughs> that's obviously part, part of the conversation. How about yourself, Caitlin? How do you feel about this? Yeah, I, I think Raul's right. Um, I, I look a little bit uh, further down the road and look to, it, it, it is ultimately all going to be about cash flows disappearing, absolutely. But I think the signs that we can all watch for that, that the end is nigh, so to speak, which we have not seen yet, to be clear, is shocking levels of volatility in the dollar against other currencies and the dollar against gold and in financial markets. And a lot of folks were shocked, just shocked after all these years of the Fed suppressing volatility successfully, that we were seeing, you know, 1% daily swings, right? That we didn't used to see that, um, except for probably in the 90s was the last time we really saw those, those kind of daily swings. And, and we were getting 5% daily swings, and it was shocking everyone. And I suggested, go read the book, When Money Dies, by Adam Ferguson, which was a, a historian who wrote this tremendous book explaining what happens 
what happened during, to both the uh, Austrian and German currencies as the money died? And uh, the answer is the volatility gets to be just staggering towards the end. And we have not seen that yet. Um, and, and when folks were upset about one or 2% daily volatility, much less five, that's when everybody needs to just understand your history, read your history, and realize that you're going to see 10% daily swings, 25% daily swings. Towards the end of the German currency, literally, there were 50% intraday swings. And there were multiple periods of time. We, t we tend to look at hyperinflations on log graphs and it makes it the, the log graph makes it looks look like it's it's sort of a you know a straight line it's never a straight line we have these unbelievable head fake rallies that Raul was pointing to where it makes it seem like things are calm and better and under control uh, and it's finally over right and it's not over when you're on this path until it's it's really truly over and to answer your direct question, Peter, I don't think there is anything that can be done. This is fundamentally an insolvency. And, and one last thing to share is that financial institutions and even whole economies can be insolvent for years, if not decades, as long as they remain liquid. And all that the central banks are doing is just creating liquidity. That doesn't mean that, that, they're, they're, that they're solving the solvency problem, which is actually at bottom what's happening. And so we need to recapitalize. Um, but uh, last comment is uh, uh, don't be afraid of bankruptcy. Bankruptcy doesn't mean a business closes its doors necessarily. Liquidation does, but not bankruptcy. Bankruptcy means you're getting the productive assets of the economy into stronger hands, into people who know how to generate real economic growth and real economic value from, from those assets. And that's what we'll be going through. Well, that was something you and I were discussing yesterday, Travis, with regards to how in the US, for example, we discussed how so much money has been lent to some of the big businesses, they've not been allowed to fail. Um, Mnuchin famously re said recently he's not even going to announce who the money was lent to and how much. But actually, we discussed, well, you pointed to me that some of these companies' survival is a, a matter of national security. Yeah, there, yeah. I mean, I had this view that like the absolute level of the S and P five hundred is a matter of national security for the U.S. government, and they have this tool, this 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 arrow in, in their quiver, quantitative easing that that makes stock prices go up, and they're they're willing and able and incentivized to print with a track record of printing. So I think it's a good base case assumption to work off of that, that they're just going to be, you know, tremendously accommodative. And so the original question was kind of like, can the central banks or can the Fed do anything? Can the treasury do anything? And this dollar shortage situation, you know, again, the great accelerator, something that had been in play for, you know, the repo market blew out September of last year. Fed funds flipped the overnight interest rate, uh, the overnight offer rate in, in April of 2019. You know, we cut interest rates three times in 2019 before anybody ever said coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So a lot, a lot of this dollar shortage situation was coming to a head before anybody ever said corona. And then you have this event. And, and in my opinion, the, the ferociousness with which the Fed and the Treasury responded was a clear indication that they understood how tight 
that that situation was and how dire it was if they didn't act big and fast. And, you know, it's always whatever the most dangerous words in, it are in, in investing or this time is different. Right. And I understand that. But, but I've also been saying for a while that this is not the U.S. dollar in 2020 is not your parents world reserve currency. And it's definitely not your grandparents world reserve currency. Because this dollar shortage situation, the, I, to the best of my knowledge, and there's definitely folks that have done, I've done a decent amount of monetary history. You know, there's certainly folks that have done a lot more, but I don't think there's ever been a time when a specific currency has had, and you know, the global economy on lockdown the way that the U.S. dollar has right now, and it, you know, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of giving the Fed a lot of credit. But if you were going to give them the most credit possible, you would you would start asking questions like, did they set this up like this on purpose, where you got the whole world short dollars and knowing that if anything ever really bad happened, you would be able to support the U.S. Americans. You'd be able to support Americans to a degree previously unfathomable. And, and uh, about six weeks ago, I saw a stat, Raul, you, you may have seen this, from, from, from Goldman's research that said that consumer disposable income in the United States in 2020 was, was projected to be half a percent higher than in 2019. H- higher. H- how the hell does something like that happen? Well, well it happens when uh, a big portion of, of the United States population goes on unemployment, gets the extra federal level unemployment. A lot of people don't have to pay rent right now. Then here comes the PPP, or PPP. Here comes the idle loans. Here comes all this other stuff. And you end up in a situation where people are better off than they were when they had a job for a big portion of the population. And then in the meantime, what's the Dixie done? The, the, the Dixie's unchanged over this period of time. You've done you've done three billion three trillion plus of balance sheet expansion. I mean, this this has got to be warning people. And Caitlin alludes to this in the beginning, right? So the dollar bear view was that the Fed are going to print, right? They've just done the most amount of printing in all recorded history. Yeah, the dollar didn't fucking move. That's right. right? <laughs> yeah, right. And now the Fed have stopped, and the ECB, the BOJ, and the BOE. A full printing presses like this for the next yeah. two to three months. And one we, thing we've I, seen this uh, movie before, right? They all take turns. We've seen the take turns movie. What's really right? interesting is I did some work from the BIS looking at currency flows. So what people we all fail to pick up is a trillion from the ECB is not the same as a trillion from the Fed. Right. Because a euro is 60% less liquid. Right. So basically, the, the, when the ECB do their two trillion, it's six trillion mm-hmm. in dollar terms because the, the euro is less liquid. So now we've got this lovely setup potentially where the Bank of England doing huge, and it's a less liquid currency. The Europeans are doing huge, and the BOJ are doing huge. So my guess is we'll see both Bitcoin and gold move very fast in this environment, and the dollar just keeps rallying, but will be the third of those. You know, it won't be yeah. as good as Bitcoin or gold, but it'll continue to rise versus everything else. 
It's the, the U.S. dollar is the best monetary policy house on an extraordinarily shitty monetary policy block, right? <laughs> well, the point is, it's it's not a point of them doing anything good now. It's 79.5% of every single trade transaction on earth. Yeah. I mean, it's just set in stone. Everybody needs dollars. Yeah. Now, I've always argued that the dollar ate all of its competitors, and now it's going to eat itself because they're a truly strong dollar. Well, if that happens, well, then we're in a really big problem because everybody defaults. And that's the irony of it is that we will, and again, we saw this happen in currency collapses. It happens all the time that you get the incredible head fake rally that makes everybody think that the naysayers are dead wrong. And the question is, or the reality is they're not dead wrong. This is exactly how it was always going to play out. You just didn't know how far and how fast, and you didn't know exactly what the sequence of events was going to be. the, the one I've been looking at was the 1930s. So mm-hmm. the dollar sucked in all the world's capital in the 1930s in its debt deflation, yeah. which is doing now. And eventually, they had to devalue it 40% because it was far too strong, right. which I feel that somewhere within this is, is everybody walking away from the dollar and moving away from that 79.5% and bringing it somewhere like 40% as the world decides, listen, we can't deal with this any longer. Yeah. That, well, and but we've that, done this before. Sorry, Travis, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to add that we've done this before, right? We did this right after the, 80, in, in the 87 um, crash uh, in the Plaza Accord. We've done this mass agreed devaluation. And look what that did. That triggered a series of debt deflationary collapses that began with Japan within a year or two. It did not usher in a new stability. It just ushered it. It just moved the instability outside of the U.S. for a few years. We may end up doing that as well in, in, the, next, uh, in the next year or two, precisely because everybody is so uh, is screaming about the lack of, of dollars. In my opinion, having a setup like what you guys are talking about is your base case assumption ignores the body of evidence that we have about U.S. politicians and now the Fed, which has become entirely politicized, those individuals' willingness to kick the can by any means necessary for as long as possible. And they're, you know, I really think boomers are just, they're all, they're just trying to die before this whole thing blows up so that they can just hand it off to another and then, and then we get to deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, this isn't going to be Trump's problem. This isn't going to be Jay Powell's problem. This isn't Biden's problem. This isn't, this isn't Mnuchin's problem. It's not going to be any of their problems. It's, it's going to be our problem, right? And I think they realize that. And in the meantime, from a political perspective, like, you're so worried about this dollar strengthening, you know, dollar wrecking ball is a term that people use a lot. And all you have to do is go beep boop and print trillions of dollars. Oh, and you can just give those trillions of dollars to Americans to make their lives better and headline. The only thing you're worried about is headline CPI. Yeah, but but as, as Caitlin talked about, it's a relative world. Do you think the Europeans are going to let the U.S. do that without printing their own? They're not. That's the, that's the problem. We're in the circular argument. How it plays out, I don't know. But as Caitlin says, somewhere within that is a lot more currency volatility than we've lived with for a long time. Yeah. It's not a seven-vol world, which is what currency vol is nowadays. 
it's something bigger because if what you're saying is, okay, the Fed now go next, printing money in MMT style. Well, the Europeans are going to have to do it. And then the Japanese and, and then the Brits and then the Aussies. And I, I don't know where that ends. Well, we do know where it ends, but you know, that somewhere within yeah. this, it just gets worse and worse and worse because the only answer the central banks have to everything is more. There's no other right. answer they have. Yeah, I would agree with that. The political decision to go down this path was made literally in 1968 when the U.S. said, hey, we're, 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 we're going to ignore the restraints put on us by the gold standard. And I always like to add, in my opinion, there's nothing special about gold itself. What gold did was literally just put a tether on the dollar on how much credit could be created. And it literally, if you look at the data that the Fed itself produces, the U.S. economy, and just look up, add up all the savings in the economy in any given year, and look at how much credit was created. And the two, up until 1968, were roughly equal. And maybe one year there was a little bit more credit, but the next year there'd be a little bit more savings. There really was no difference. And on a cumulative basis, it was exactly the same. We had what, what I would call an equity-financed economy in the U.S. back then. And that was exactly what the gold standard was intended to create an equity financed economy. But we, but we did have, I mean, the gold standard, a lot of people say, well, it's the panacea, this is the, the holy grail. But you look back across the history of all currencies, even when they're back with gold, most of them all collapsed. You know, gold's the thing that gets left standing. The currency that's pegged to it dies. Ah, because that's a second layer currency. So this gets us into, into the, the Bitcoin discussion about different layers. Of- Look at the excitement on your face. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, because well, there's a, yeah, Peter, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, well, the, so this is something we all share in common. This is the reason we're, we're all here. We all have a, a, our own opinions, but thoughts on Bitcoin. And um, do, you, do you think with, with some kind of unwinding of the economy, Caitlin, that there will be strong arguments to return to a form of gold standard globally? Do you think some form of catastrophic unwinding of the markets will lead to those discussions or do you think people will avoid them? I'm avoiding saying let's go to a Bitcoin standard now because I don't see that as a debate within governments right now. But could you see prior to getting into Bitcoin, do do you see there's a potential for a debate to go back to a gold standard that will never happen? I doubt it um, because the policymakers understand that that puts puts them in handcuffs and no government wants to be in handcuffs regarding how much it can never spend. But what I do, what I am confident in is that individuals will figure this out for themselves. They will read, they will listen to folks who've done a lot of reading and try to distill what they've learned in podcasts such as yours and, and events such as this. And, and they will make the decisions and walk with their own feet. And that is ultimately what I think is happening. And this, this is the Hayekian um, world of, of, of currency competition. It's a wonderful thing. Let's all have the choice to, to store our assets wherever we want. And let's also face it, I, ha- I have the humility to, to recognize that I don't know with 100% certainty that I'm right. And so everyone should conclude that uh, about their own situation and walk with your own feet. Um, I just want to add something into that when I defer to you, Travis, because I read something today preparing for an entirely different interview. But it was talking to somebody who's taken a long look at the moment, at a lot of the societal problems at the moment, the things triggered by George Floyd, which really are separate issues. But this person hasn't really taken a look at the money. And I was reading something and, and I read today that, the, the, the supply of our money and who controls it is the greatest social issue, issue that confronts humanity today. It is the hidden hand behind history. So 
for you, Travis, what what is the role that Bitcoin plays in all of this? Bitcoin is a non-sovereign, hard cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized digital store of value. And it's an insurance policy against monetary and fiscal policy irresponsibility from central banks and governments globally. That's, that's, what, I think I, that's what I think Bitcoin is. And the, the more irresponsible central banks and governments are with their monetary and fiscal policies, the more valuable the insurance policies is. And this great accelerator that Corona has acted as has made that insurance policy, in my opinion, tremendously more valuable. And, you know, this is broadly the kind of Paul Tudor Jones view and and a lot of other folks' kind of view on, on this stuff as well, too. Specifically, you know, how that plays out, I, I continue to think that there's a high degree of uncertainty there. I don't think that, I don't think that it can, the big wholesale changes, I don't think can happen with boomers still in control of this much wealth and power. It's just, there's just no reason to think that, you know, some 70 something year olds are going to, you know, be a couple years away from kicking the bucket and decide that like, okay, we're going to go to the gold standard. Like, it's just, it's not what's going to happen. You're going to need to get a different generation of, of, of individuals into wealth and power that have a different worldview broadly and are less tethered to you know, the way things have been going for a number of decades, I, I think. And then, and, then, and then even on top of that, it's going to take, you know, a tremendous amount of stress. I think like you have to have, you know, some things have to get quite shitty before that's the forcing function to, to push for real big wholesale changes. But I think that's going to be change. It's going to be in the hands of, 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 uh, of Gen X and, and, and millennials, you know, over the next 10 years, 20 years, that that kind of deal. I want to throw that one to you as well, Rao, but I just want to add into it. Um, I think, Rao, you're obviously a very good bridge between this kind of Bitcoin world and the traditional finance world. It's, it's something Real Vision does very well. I just want you to add into that, just for those listening, is that for us, there's a very natural uh, understanding of Bitcoin. Um, for many people, it, it, they don't seem to get it. And I, I've got Peter Schiff coming on my show soon to discuss gold because like, I want to buy some gold as well. I, I have a, a Bitcoin, but I also actually want a bit of gold. One of the difficulties with gold is actually been trying to source it, trying to source physical gold. But our, our mutual friend, Dan Tapiro has been helping me out with this. But what I want to ask you the same, what is the role of Bitcoin in this? And, and are you still hearing from, uh, like, are, are there still detractors in this world? Are the people you're talking to still got this fear of Bitcoin and lack of understanding? So the role of Bitcoin at this point in time, because we don't know where it's going to go and how big it's going to be and what role it's going to play. But in this point in time, it does have a very similar role that gold has, which is it can be our own personal reserve asset. Forget everybody else, forget governments. We're free to use it. I think it has advantages over gold. I own both. I think it has advantages over gold because it's digital, it's made of the modern era, and there's other things we can do with it. So what makes Bitcoin incredibly attractive, it's not only our personal reserve asset, which is the hardest form of money, but it also has a call option on the future. Right? So that makes it valuable. And you know, if we're hurtling towards the event horizon, where it's coming almost into the right now, well, that call option is going to be very valuable. So, so that's how I... I see that part of it. 
In terms of the detractors, yes. And it all comes down to, I think, kind of what Travis is alluding to. People know what they know. And older people know what they know and what they find comfortable with. Others, in a very confusing world, want to anchor onto one thing. So the the most vociferous people anti-Bitcoin tend to be gold people, even though they're of the same ilk. Mm-hmm. But they just don't believe that it, anything could have a different property but still have the same properties overall. So, they, they, you know, the argument goes, well, what happens if electricity gets turned off? Well, if the whole world's electricity gets turned off, I don't know what's happened. We've been hit by a meteorite the size of Saturn or something. So, I mean... And the other one is quantum computing. Those are the two ones that come up. But what happens if, or what happens if governments steal your coin? Well, same with gold. So there's no real thing. What it is is a fear of change. And that's normal. Society has a fear of change. And I was talking about this on a panel earlier with with Novo and uh, Mark Yusko, is, well, this group has a fear of change. And even some of us have had to deal with this change and understand it. There's a group of Gen Zs who believe everything digital has value. And that tokens are a normal way of transacting with things outside of a normal fiat currency. And as I was just talking about, I mean, I don't know if anybody saw the story, but it kind of blew my mind. Is that? I know what we're going to say. What about the cinemas? Did you see this? Oh no, I thought you were going to talk about something else about the gilded. Is it the gilded copper that turned that, that no. just came out today? No. So something blew my mind just because it's the world that we don't understand because we didn't grow up in, but Gen Zs did. So cinemas are closed everywhere around the world. So what does the cinema industry do? It releases films in Fortnite. So you go as a digital person to hang out with your digital friends and watch a digital representation of this film in another world and pay with tokens to watch it. Okay, that we, we, we don't even think in those terms yet. <laughs> the kids are so used to doing that by socializing in a digital world. You know, we're still used to getting on our bikes and going to see our mates and smoking cigarettes, you know, around the corner so your parents don't catch them. They don't do that. They hang out in Fortnite. And now they're paying to watch films or music concerts in tokens. In fo- I mean, so to Travis's point, once the generations change, I mean, everything changes. It, right, it, was, a, got, it was a huge don't. step change for me when I saw last year in Fortnite – the, you, have you ever heard of this DJ Marshmallow? Have you ever heard of this guy yeah. before? Yeah, ten, 10 million people showed up to, to his concert in Fortnite. Ten, that's one of the largest gatherings of human beings in recorded human history, right? <laughs> and you just think about that and then you imagine, okay, that's 2019. What's 2029 going to look like? What's 2039 going to be like? Oh, guess what? A, a digital non-sovereign form of money that's governed by open source computer software it's going to be really valuable and it's going to be really important to the world. Yeah. It's going to be normal. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad you well, brought up the, the, the demographic point because I, I do think that it, what we're really after, what is money at, at the end of the day, it's just an honest ledger. And his, historically before we had a digital world, the only honest ledger that really has proven out time and again has been gold, but in a post digital world, what is the most honest ledger? Well, right now, Bitcoin and gold have approximately the same stock to flow ratio, and Bitcoin's about to become even more honest than gold and in four years. In generational terms, is the baby boomers in their 20s saw the leaving of the gold standard. 
So if you think the politics of nostalgia is so strong right now, it's always looking back, right? So Boris Johnson in the UK looking back, Donald Trump looking back, even Joe Biden is looking back to the glory days of the past because the world is changing so fast right now. So they, the glory days of the past was the gold standard. That was something that they could believe in. You just need to free your mind of that and say what could be. And, you know, I think all subsequent generations are much better at understanding and being involved in change and not fearing it as much. So for us, we kind of look forward to it while the boomers fear it. I'm going to interject here because we've got four minutes left and I've got a final question. You've got about a minute left to answer it each. But Caitlin, I'll start with you. One prediction for the next uh, 12, 24 months. And also uh, a question I like asking all of you, one bit of advice of how people can prepare for what is going to be quite shaky times. Prediction uh, is the cryptoization of the dollar. Um, we are going to see US dollar equivalents issued and traded on these public decentralized blockchains, especially Bitcoin, also Ethereum, as we're already seeing. And the, the transactional velocity of those currencies is going to shock everybody. I just did a recent update on the stable coins. The, main, the three main stable coins all have M1 velocity uh, in the range of 45 to 55 times, whereas the US dollar's M1 velocity is only five. And uh, that's only on-chain transactions. If you start to, co to count the off-chain transactions, Tether is almost at $20 trillion, if you believe the numbers, almost at $20 trillion in annualized velocity. And uh, we're going to continue to see um, more and more and more of that because these are just superior technologies to, to fiat currencies, but also superior payment rails. And over to you, Travis, you got about a minute. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not going to make a specific prediction, but what I'm going to just tell people to watch carefully is to look at five-year forward inflation, look at the Dixie, the DXY index, watch those two things, and then watch what the Fed and the Treasury and U.S. politicians do with monetary and fiscal policy over the next 12, 18 months and, and triangulate that with to what degree the economy recovers from coronavirus. So whether it's a V or a U or an L or, you know, and, and put, just watch all those things together very carefully. And uh, I think you're going to have a pretty good, you're going to get a pretty good sense of, of, of what their willingness is to do, you know, a lot or, or uh, a medium amount or maybe just a bit. And finally, our amazing host, Mr. Rao Pal. You're the um, host today, my friend. Well, it's your event. It's your event. But thank you for uh, having me do this. Um, so my prediction is that Bitcoin currently looks like a risk asset because of the leverage within systems like BitMEX. But because of the structure of the leverage within the Bitcoin world, it goes away quite quickly once everybody stopped out. So I think it's, there's a lot of leverage in the system. But as things move, that goes away and it stops being correlated to the stock market overall. So I think it goes from a risk asset to a risk off asset. So I think that's something we might be able to observe. You asked the question, what advice do I give people? My advice, yeah. is, my advice is always, in times like this, secure and create any personal cash flows that you can. There are ways of monetizing. And it's all about that piece of advice that I've told you before, which is- Hustle. 
hustle, <laughs> and he who has cash, cash in a recession is king. Just mm-hmm. don't get caught without cash. If we're talking about a solvency event, do everything in your power now before solvency becomes an issue, and then you can avoid it, and then you're on the front foot. It's as simple as that. Okay, it's not always easy to do, but focus on that one thing, and I think, you know, and Bitcoin plays a part in that as well because it gives you some aspects of the future too. Well, that was an amazing session. Everything I expected. Thank you all for all the times you've been on my podcast. I always got very high downloads. People are always really interested in uh, understanding more about the financial markets because there's a lot to understand. Um, so I appreciate you all. And uh, again, Raoul, thank you for allowing me to host this uh, fantastic session. Thank thanks, Caitlin. Hopefully see you soon. And, and you too, Travis. Yeah, thanks for doing a great job, Peter. And thanks everybody for coming on. Brilliant. Okay. Cheers. See you guys. All right then. So what did you think of that one? Bit of a monster, right? You cannot fail when you get Raoul on the show. You cannot fail when you get Caitlin on the show. You can't fail when you get Travis on the show. So when you get all three together, you know you're going to get an absolute monster. As I mentioned in the intro, the three of them have been on the show numerous times, and they always deliver. If you haven't checked out any of those previous interviews, I highly recommend you go back and check them out, especially as all three were raising systemic issues within the markets, and they were all right. Also, I just want to say a massive thanks again to Real Vision, to Rao Power, to the team for letting me kind of go freestyle on what I wanted to do at their event and the panels I wanted to host. I've got another one I hosted with Real Vision coming out, which I think will be out next week. Keep an eye out for that. That's a little bit more of a what's going on with Bitcoin, so hopefully you enjoy that too. Outside of that, go and check out my other show on Defiance. That's my other podcast at defiance.news. I've got How to Enter Humanity, all about synthetic biology. You might enjoy that. Anything you want to talk to me, reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And have a great weekend. Love you all. See you soon. Bye.